This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Thanks so much for being with us. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing our series in 1 Peter today, will be at the end of chapter 3. Looking at verses 18 down through verse 22. And I think we're all feeling this amazement at how relevant 1 Peter is. It, it feels like every Sunday as we look into this book, it has important things to say to us. I don't think today's text is any different. I'm so thankful. This is God's Word. This is God's inspired Word. It's inerrant it's given to the church. It has authority in our lives. And we're grateful for how it encourages and strengthens our faith as we study it. So follow along with me, please, as we read 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God bless us, Lord, as we study your word today. A couple commentators, one said, this is one of the most difficult texts in the entirety of the New Testament. Another one, this paragraph is notoriously obscure and difficult to interpret. So I hope you had a good week. <laughs> hope you had lots of fun resting, watching some ball, having a great time. It is a, it, it is a difficult text, but there is so much encouraging truth in this text that is not obscure or difficult. I'm going to read you from one commentator 
Thomas Schreiner, one of the greatest New Testament scholars, he says this about this text. Just to give you the main point and, and kind of get our thinking right as we start to look at it. The main point of this paragraph is that believers have no need to fear that suffering is the last word. For they share the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering has secured victory over all hostile powers. Believers then are akin to Noah. They are a small and embattled minority in a hostile world. But they can be sure that like Noah, their future is secure when the judgment comes. They're like Noah. The main point is there's no need to fear that suffering for righteousness sake is the end of the story. Their destiny is secure. Jesus reigns and he rules in the midst of our suffering. And it just strengthens us to think about that. To understand this paragraph, what I've done this week, and I think it'll serve us all, is to kind of look at where we've come from and where we're going. Because that really helps you interpret this difficult text. So if you remember back last week in verse 17, it's a call for Christians to suffer if that is God's will for them. That's the context. And it isn't easy to hear this, and Peter knows his readers need help. We need encouragement. We need understanding. We're being called to suffer for doing good. Okay, we need some help. So in verse 18 here, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ also suffered. Christ suffered for doing good. It is God's will for us to suffer at times for doing good, for Christ also suffered. So he's encouraging us. And then down in chapter 4, we'll see in a couple weeks, Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And, and so now his point is going to be, be ready to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will. He's preparing us for that. And between these two calls to suffer here, we have this notoriously obscure and difficult text. And, and so clearly, the main point of these verses are exactly what Dr. Schreiner said they were. They're to, they're to help us and strengthen us and get us ready to suffer for being faithful to Jesus Christ, for doing what is right. His, his in, intent is to arm us for the world we live in. It's why the pastoral team wanted to study 1 Peter right now. We need 1 Peter. Actually, for most of the world and for most of history, being a Christian has never been safe. These Christians that Peter is writing, the ones he was originally writing to, they were not safe. Every Christian living in the first three centuries of, of church history knew that sooner or later they might be called upon to give their testimony and it might cost them their lives. In fact, today, 
it's, it's normal in many places to suffer for being a believer. It's, it's our calling. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. Drew Williams is one of our VFC interns. And he sent me an article called Looking to the Chinese Church for Encouragement. I really have a heart for China. And this article affected me. Looking to the Chinese Church for Encouragement. It's written by actually a British historian who's also a Christian. He started out, in the United States, many Christians have realized they're no longer batting for the home team. America isn't the Judeo-Christian country many thought it was. And he says that if, if we take a global view, we might be surprised to learn that Christianity remains alive and flourishing, even in the face of bad government, exceptional adversity in a country. And this gospel growth should give us hope, he says. And he asks these questions, does Christianity need a sympathetic government for its gospel to spread, for the kingdom of God to expand? His response is, surely not. And you can tell this because if you, if you look at Christianity in China, you will know Christianity doesn't need a sympathetic government. The work of God is, is invincible, and you can see it when you look at China because the gospel is advancing in the midst of impossible circumstances. The BBC says there are a hundred million practicing Christians in China today, they estimate. A hundred million. That's more people than are members of the Chinese Communist Party. And all this is in spite of the fact that the communist government has spent years persecuting Christians. They want to maintain their power. And so they have attacked Christians in China. In the last 75 years, millions of people have been killed, including many Christians. But in spite of these efforts, God has remained, this man writes, with his people in China. And so the persecution has actually had the opposite effect. And it's astonishing. Far from being wiped out, the church has grown exponentially. It appears that the most amazing revival in the history of the church has taken place in the midst of this persecution. So he concludes, he says, it seems the factors many of us in the West consider necessary for church growth are supremely irrelevant. Our Chinese brothers and sisters have genuine trust in God's word to do God's work. After all, he says, they have no other option. Now, I would say they do have another option. It's called compromise and cowardice. They haven't done that. And 1 Peter is written to help us not do this. So I want us, I want our congregation to stand for the truth and not compromise and watch God work. And that's why we're in 1 Peter. So Lord, give us courage as we study this word today. He's preparing us 
to suffer. Right now is just a great time for a heavy dose of 1 Peter, isn't it? He's laboring to say, you're, you're exiles, you're aliens, you're citizens of another country. And this is why these verses were written. So note some instructions he gives us about suffering for righteousness sake in 1 Peter 3. First of all, suffering does not mean God is punishing you. Suffering does not mean God is punishing you. In fact, it means the opposite of that. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Because he suffered for the unrighteous to bring believers to God, we can expect to experience unjust suffering. Suffering for doing good. You're not supposed to suffer when you do good. But we can expect to do this because Christ suffered. We're not being punished. That's one of the instructions Peter's given us. It's very encouraging when you're suffering, to realize I'm not being punished by God. This verse, verse 18, has been characterized as one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament for the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. I commend it to you. Spend some time in verse 18. It's one of the shortest, simplest, richest summaries of the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not obscure, is it? It is not difficult to interpret. This is the meaning of the cross. You'll remember the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Corinth, which was a goofy church, and said that when he came to them, he didn't come proclaiming the Word of God with lofty speech and wisdom. That's what they wanted. That's what they were drawn to. That's what they liked. And he did not do that. He came and decided to know nothing. They want this, but I'm not going to give them that. I'm going to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach, he said, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ and Him crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's exactly what Peter is saying. Paul said, he, this is what Christ sent Him to do. This is our mission. This is our message. We want to stay on message. And what a gift to have this verse, this little concise summary of the cross, the power of the cross is in this verse. And we're fools if we neglect this, this message. It's our message. It's clear throughout this whole letter, this is how Peter thinks. He isn't ashamed of the gospel. He isn't ashamed to return to it again and again and again. And we should never move on from a focus on the cross. I want to encourage you. Let's just stop for a minute 
to every single day review the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself. Review the gospel, Christians, and preach the gospel to yourself. You can use this verse this week. The gospel is not just for those who are not Christians. So we can preach the gospel to them and see them come to Christ. It's not just for that purpose. Certainly it is for that purpose, but it's for us. We need the gospel today. And this verse is a gift to help us review the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It says, Christ is our substitute. Here's the gospel. This is the meaning of the cross, the message of the cross. Christ is our substitute. Verse 18, Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He died as our substitute. He took my place. He took the penalty I deserved. He bore it for me. He was innocent. I was guilty. My sins were counted as his. His righteousness is counted as mine. He died for the sins of others. It was the fact that he was sinless that qualified him for this great substitutionary work. We needed it because of our sin. He was qualified because he had no sin. Amen. That's the meaning and the message of the cross. He was our substitute. He died for our sins. He atoned for our sins. And he reconciled us to God. Note also that his death was sufficient. He suffered once for sins. If you remember the Jewish priests every year on the Day of Atonement would offer sacrifices for sin annually again and again and again. He suffered once. It was final. The debt is paid in full. His atoning work is absolutely sufficient his suffering was an example for us, but it was much more than that. His sufferings are unique. He suffered once for sins. That's plural. Sins. Everybody said he bore the mass of sins for mankind in his death. It was sufficient. And that's why he said on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Our friend Tony Carter has just come out with a new book. I, I told him, you write them, I'll sell them. It says, when Christians proclaim the finished work of Christ, they are directing readers and listeners to the central moment in the central event in the history of salvation. If you are looking anywhere else for what Jesus alone can do, you are shrugging at Jesus' words from the cross. If you think you need anything else in addition to Jesus, you've not truly grasped the magnificent and holy weight of his words. It is finished. God, and that minister to your soul, it is finished. Peter doesn't want those who are suffering for doing good. 
suffering for righteousness sake to forget that Christ he's our great king he's our savior he suffered he suffered Jesus predicted that he would be killed and if you remember Peter said to him far be it from you Lord this shall never happen to you remember that but now he's got a different message he understands he understands the meaning of the cross he understands this is the good news he understands this is power this is life changing and now he's proclaiming the death of the messiah the jewish messiah that he once thought never should this happen to him now he understands and he's saying oh no he died he was your substitute it is finished no more sacrifices in the temple. Suffering doesn't mean God is punishing us. He's already punished our sins on the cross. Second instruction we get from Peter here is suffering doesn't mean God is not with you. Suffering does not mean God is not with you. Christ, verse 18 again, Suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the meaning, the purpose, the great purpose that he accomplished on the cross. He brought us to God. He reconciled us to God. This is the great treasure of the kingdom. A relationship with God. Fellowship with with God in Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Which a man finds and in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. What is that field? Reconciliation to God. That's the kingdom where God is. Jesus is our treasure. Knowing him is of surpassing value. Suffering doesn't mean God is not with you. Jesus suffered on the, on the cross to bring you to God and it is finished. You are reconciled. He died for sins. He died for sins. Why? Because that's what separates me from God. This is my biggest need. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the, the great purpose in the death of Christ on behalf of sinners on the cross was to deal with their sins because it separated them from God and it is finished it has been done our sins are atoned for and he has brought us into fellowship with God suffering doesn't mean God is not with you your sins have been dealt with that's what separated you from God our greatest need is not to live a long life. It's not to be comfortable. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. And not live for eternity in misery. Separated from him in prison. 
One, apparently one devastating effect of the pandemic is the loss of certain fast foods. I just read an article about that this week. The pandemic has left Americans with fewer choices, and some people are making it their mission to get these choices back. You may have heard of change.org. It's a website started by some university students. It calls itself the largest social change platform in the world. They have 100 million users. And this is where many are turning to get some of the some of these foods back on menus. It's become a hotbed of agitation for food companies. There are almost 1,900 petitions on the site calling for the return of a food item. I don't want to ask you to raise your hand if you've been on there doing this. (laughs) But I can point out some boys I bet's been on that website. (laughs) Thousands of people have signed on to more than a dozen positions, for example, demanding for McDonald's to return their chicken snack wraps to their menu. I didn't even know they had chicken snack wraps. One University of uh, Kentucky college student said she sat in her car in the parking lot alone and confused. She said she couldn't figure out what she was going to do without the chicken tortillina Alfredo pasta. Sorry that Panera Bread yanked from its menu. So, I'll just call it chicken Alfredo pasta. And they yanked it from her menu. She sat in the parking lot just, I don't know what I'm going to do. She's confused. She says there's no substitute for the comfort derived from that $10 plate of pasta. This is not the Babylon Bee, by the way. That's not where I got this. <laughs> Fool me once, but. She says, Fazoli's wasn't as good. I guess that's a restaurant. Olive Garden was too expensive. She can't cook. She burns grilled cheese sa- sandwiches. So she started a petition on change.org. All that I ask is that they bring back the chicken Alfredo pasta. No comparison to the comfort. Now, it does make me want some of that pasta, so I'm with you on that. We're all going, man, when they bring it back, I'm getting me some of that. But, but what comforts us? How, how can you describe the comfort we received as Mike walked us through that psalm today? How can, how can you describe how, what it's like to, have, have, to be brought into a relationship with the living God? How can you describe what it's like to be able to cast your burdens to Him? What, how do you describe what it's like to, to have fellowship with other believers? And their fellowship is with Christ and you share that together in the context of a small group or this morning as we're together. So when Peter instructs us that suffering does not mean that God is not with us, it's the most comforting words in the world. This is our great comfort. 
when it's God's will that we suffer, when we live in the midst of a culture and a world that isn't supportive and it is against us. This is our great comfort. Satan is going to be right there and his most effective temptation in the midst of suffering is to say he's forsaken you. You're being punished. He's turned his back. His his face is not shining towards you. And now we have God's word saying, no, he's, he's brought you to God. Suffering does not mean that God is not with you. And Peter sees the situation in Noah's day as strengthening us for suffering. After he says that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in verse 18 he writes, in which, he's made alive in the Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed, verse 19, to the spirits in prison. Because they formally did not obey. Verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. This is a reference to the time when people in Noah's day were disobedient. They mocked Noah and his family. They mocked them for obeying God, for being righteous people. And this is what Peter's readers are experiencing. Noah and his family are out there building an ark, this massive Boat and preaching, judgment is coming, and they are being mocked. And Peter sees the connection. Do you? While the ark was being prepared, Noah constructed the ark at God's command. You can go back in Genesis 6, very beginning of the Bible, and read about it. it, it imagine it was a huge construction project, and the, and the building of this ark lasted for many years. And all along, God's patience was being exercised. And Noah was preaching, judgment is coming. And this ark was was a sign, judgment is coming. And Peter is saying that Jesus, in the Spirit, was sent by God in those days and was preaching through Noah about the coming judgment. Peter wrote in chapter 1, if you remember, the Spirit of God was in the prophets preaching about the coming of Christ. Now he's saying the Spirit of God was in Noah. The Spirit filled Noah as he preached to these disobedient people in his day. And now they're in prison because they rejected his preaching. They're in this place of torment. They're waiting for the final judgment. Now, I'm going to pause and I want to proclaim the gospel to anyone in this room or listening by live stream who's not a believer. We want to offer you the gospel. Verse 18. We've just walked through it. We want, maybe, maybe you're someone that you don't know about the gospel. Maybe you're someone that does know about the gospel, but you've never seen, recognized your need for a Savior. We want to offer you the gospel. One man wrote, 
The fact that the Son of God loved men and gave Himself a sacrifice for them, enduring such bitter sorrows, is the most powerful appeal which can be made to mankind to induce them to return to God. So there's, there's an appeal being made this morning from God's Word to you. Return to God. This congregation is just filled with people that would love to pray for you and talk to you. You can always go to the Welcome Center, ask for information. All the pastors are here all day. We're happy to talk to you. We, we go home eventually, but we're here to talk and pray for you and talk to you about the gospel if you'd like to hear more. But you need a Savior. My hope is that you'll see your need this morning. But verses 19 and 20 are a reminder that it's better to obey Him and suffer than to disobey and be cast into this prison. These people who, who lived and heard Noah preaching, they were fools. They mocked Him until the rain began to fall and the flood came and swept them away. And then there was this little group that were saved. They trusted God. Peter gives us the exact number because he wants to make it clear the majority were not saved. He wants to make it clear the believers were small, little. The point is, it's no disadvantage to God for His people to be a small, rejected minority. It's no disadvantage to Him. It can feel that way to us, can it? If you are a minority with God, you can, you can feel like a fool. I'm a fool. The majority is against me. But let me tell you, it is no disadvantage to God. None. If you are a minority with God, you will be saved. And in the end, everybody's perspective will be different. So don't throw away your confidence. It may, it may take a while. God is patient. He is waiting. He is giving mankind an opportunity to repent. So he's patient. It may be a while. But God brings his people to their destination. It's tied with Christ. Speaking of China, I, like I said, I just have a heart for China. And I've been to Asia many times, and I have a friend there. Our church has worked with in South Korea, Song Wong Kong, and he has a church there, Lord's Grace Church. It's just a wonderful church. And I wrote him, I was just talking to him about China. China's in the news. China is becoming a more and more powerful country. I just have a heart for China. And he, he wrote me back and, and I just said, what, what's going on? How can we be involved in China? Well, of course, he's already involved. And they've been, in, they've been involved with missionaries that are going in there. China has now expelled all the South Korean missionaries uh, from China, but he has a, a, a man that, that's Chinese that he works with. I can't pronounce his name. I do even worse than the pasta name. So I'm not going to do this one. But 
He's been training these ministers. You've heard about Chinese home churches. He goes over once a month, works with a church in Beijing, trains them. It's, it's, uh, works with these local ministers to teach the Bible in a redemptive history perspective. But he hasn't been able to enter China this year because of COVID-19, so he's been doing it online. He said it's one of the most difficult seasons to continue in ministry. And he just gave me ways we could pray for him. Please pray for this. I'm looking forward to us being back with Song One. Looking forward to being able to do ministry in China. Especially because they threw all the missionaries out. That's, that's just when the Lord just loves to do stuff, isn't it? And it's what's been going on for China. They just haven't got the message yet. This doesn't work. You can persecute the church and it'll thrive. It'll be the greatest revival in history. Don't, don't despise these little, this one little missionary going over and working with little house churches. It just sounds so small, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like eight people on an ark. That's the point. We feel that way, don't we? Just all that's going on in our culture. I mean, if you are a, a, a Christian who believes this is God's word and the gospel is the power of God into salvation, you are not in the majority. The ark brought Noah and his family safely to their destination. It reminds Peter of baptism. It reminds, it, it's, it's the, he, he's just talking about how the water, the Lord used the ark and the water to bring them safely to their destination, to a new world. And baptism is like that. It's not about removing dirt from the body. It's an expression of faith in what Christ does in our soul. It's a, it's a confession. I've been saved. I've been raised with Him in His resurrection. And bapti baptism symbolizes this. That's what these verses are about. Finally, Third instruction, suffering does not mean you are defeated. He was made alive, verse 18, in the Spirit. Jesus was put to death. He died in His humanity. His life on earth ended. He was a real human being who experienced a real death. Men crucified Him. It was a violent death. But by the power of the Spirit, Christ was raised from the dead. His resurrection was a great victory. He's, he's exalted now on high. He's ascended on high. And believers are united to Him by faith. And because of that, they experience His victory. You share His destiny. Sin is defeated. You no longer have to serve sin. You've been set free. There's no more condemnation. Death is defeated. You have assurance in your soul, a seal, a guarantee that you've been raised to new life, resurrected life. 
And his victory means freedom from fear. Tim Keller is a well-known uh, Christian author and pastor. Many of his books we have available in the, in the bookstore. He's written a wonderful book on suffering. He's, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I listened to a recent podcast with him with Kevin DeYoung and some friends, and I heard him say that the first six months of the treatment went very, very well, and he's very thankful. He has more energy, doing better, but pancreatic cancer is about as bad as it gets, he said. It's hard to treat. It's very lethal. Even if they can't see it, everybody would say it was still there, can't be eradicated. So he's just talking about what he was experiencing. He said, I am not fighting cancer. I am fighting my sin. So Kevin DeYoung drew him out. He says, if it wasn't for my sin, I would be completely resting in Christ and the resurrection. It would be spiritually real to me. And I would be doing well in my soul. And I would be absolutely fine spiritually and emotionally. The fears and anxiety wouldn't be troubling me. So his point, when he says, I'm not fighting cancer, he, he, he is fighting cancer, of course, in some degree. But he's explaining what, what it is, is my sin that keeps me from these spiritual realities that bring me this great comfort and encourage my soul. And therefore, the way I handle my imminent death is by fighting my sin and seeking to know God in a deeper way. And then he started talking about John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ. Owen wrote this, preached these messages when he was dying. It's his last book. He's one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He's dying. It's how he was dealing with his death. Keller, Keller said, it's what he's trying to do. He said, I'm not writing a book. Because it's already been written. <laughs> the glory, you could, that was a good point. <laughs> the glory of Christ is it's his dying testimony. One, one early editor said it's instructive to peruse the solemn musings of his soul when weakness, weariness, and the near approaches of death were on his mind. His thoughts were fixed on the glory of the Savior. Whom he was soon to see on his deathbed the day he died. The guy that was publishing the, the book, The Glory of Christ, came to tell him, Doctor, I've just been putting your book on the glory of Christ to press. Owen says, I'm glad, glad to hear that's done. But oh, Brother Payne, that was the guy's name. The long looked for day has come at last, which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done yet or was capable of doing in this world. Jesus was made alive in the, in the Spirit. His victory was complete. Tim Keller and John Owen are right. They are right. They're facing imminent death and they're right. He's in a position of honor, authority, victory. He's governing the universe. He's there to help His people when they're suffering. He gives the gift of the Spirit. He gives spiritual gifts. He intercedes for us. He's our high priest. He's all-powerful. He's victorious over all the powers 
of the enemy. Peter will conclude this letter, chapter 5, and he'll say, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. In the power of Christ, we resist him. I'm going to close with this quote from John Piper. Listen to this. It will encourage your soul. Satan is not in control of this world. God never has given and never will give to Satan any freedom that God himself does not restrain and decisively direct for his wise, just, and good purposes. In all his acts, Satan is subject to God's overruling and guiding providence. Since Satan is uniformly evil, we may use the words of Genesis 50 for every one of his acts in this world. He meant it for evil, God meant it for good. When Satan wills something, he always intends to diminish God's glory and ultimately ruin God's people, ruin you. When God permits Satan to act with that design, God's design in doing so is for his glory and the ultimate good of his people, the exact opposite. So rest assured today that when you suffer, for righteousness sake, when you're rejected, when you're mocked, when you're ridiculed, you can rest assured he is in control. And your destiny is secure because you are united to him. Father, we thank you this morning for First Peter. We live in scary days, Lord. They're frightening days. When God's people are being bullied. God's people are being criticized. They're being attacked persecuted like never before. And we thank you, Lord, that you've brought us to 1 Peter to encourage our soul. And I pray for every member of this congregation, everybody watching via live stream, all our guests, everyone, Lord, who is seeking to serve you and obey you. Lord, if they're suffering for righteousness' sake, I pray they would stand firm. Amen. Lord, Give them your spirit and give them the gift of courage in Jesus' name. Yes. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.